You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. Kind of a bigger picture that I wanted to tie into today, and uh, that requires us to kind of read through a lot of scripture, but I just wanted to start kind of um, at the beginning, and uh, I'm going to read pretty briefly, just kind of take a pretty quick pace in going through the entire chapter here of Genesis 3, which represents the fall. Um, And I think it just helps us set our feet a little bit more as we kind of look into the bigger picture of what's going on. I'll just start in verse 1. I'm reading out of the ESV. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field than the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of any fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was delight to her eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord, God's, uh, Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I command you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave me is, uh, gave to be with me. She gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is it that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between the offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you not to eat, Cursed is ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. For by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Lastly, the man called his wife called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his garments. His wife garments, excuse me, made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat uh, and live forever. Therefore the Lord sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. So, uh, a drastic uh, twist and turn in the narrative has happened in Genesis chapter 3 as it's put next to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. As we've been looking over the last couple weeks, we're reminded that God is uh, defined by, uh, by a, a God that has created um, order and function and form and beauty and benefit out of chaos. In the beginning, the scripture had said that there was darkness 
and there was a Holy Spirit hovering over the deep. And as he spoke, he began to give movement and life and form and function to the things he had created. And we find in Genesis chapter 2, as the story continues, uh, that God had an intent intentional purpose, not just to create um, the, the planet and the stars and the galaxies as this kind of vast artistic landscape, but to create a planet and ultimately a home um, for, uh, for people. And so we see now the purpose in Genesis 2 of, of the trees and the land and the water. These are all necessary elements of life for what would become the center of his creation, the image bearer. There's a short poem at the end of Genesis 1 and in the middle of Genesis 2, a reiteration uh, of that exact idea, um, that these, these people, these, uh, these earthlings, literally, dust and divine breath put together, would become the images of his creation. And then we see on the seventh day, God sits down and he rests. He declares that day holy, and he says this is going to be the Sabbath day. This is the day that means completion. You see that... Um, in the beginning, as he created things, he would call them good and very good and declare that they were you know, moving somewhere and going somewhere and completely aligned with his purpose. But it was on the seventh day that he declared it complete. And, and the Bible would talk about God as this king, as this one that would reign, and, and he would sit in the heavens that he created on the first day. And then, and then his feet would be on the earth, and he would show his authority on the earth. And that's exactly what the Sabbath would mean for the Jews, is they, they would remind themselves that God was the king, that he sat on his throne in heaven, and his feet were, were down below. Um, on the earth. And so what, what we really have seen here in Genesis is not just that God has created an atmosphere or that God has created a home, but in its completion, uh, the Sabbath tells us and reminds us that God in seven days has created a temple. Uh, I grew up in, um, well, I actually didn't grow up in Hong Kong, but I was born in Hong Kong and I traveled there quite a bit. And you would go down at different times uh, of the year, especially in Chinese New Year, and you would see these little, you know, basically idols and trinkets and these little things, uh, red statues with golden, you know, interlacings on them. And there'd be incense that were, that were, you know, floating up in the sky. And, and undoubtedly, undoubtedly in the middle of every single one of these kind of red little stations that you would see in front of businesses and homes would be, would be an icon in the middle. The, the Hebrew word for this in that culture would have been selim, that every temple needs a selim. Every temple needs something in the middle of it that is going to represent it fully, that is going to bring the focus of what the intent is about and image well what, whatever that God or, or deity or whatever that thing was. That selim, that thing in the middle of it, was supposed to represent completely uh, the God that created it. And so what we see uh, is, is, is at the end of the seven days, not just creation of a planet, not just creation of a home, but the creation of, of a temple. And what we've seen in Genesis 3 then um, is really important because Genesis 3 uh, doesn't just tell us all of those verses, right, that we just read. doesn't just tell us that sin exists. It shows us exactly how sin exists, how sin existed then, how it got started, and how it continues now. It's really important as Bible readers, and we continue to talk about not just the Bible, but how to read the Bible. The Bible um, uh, is, is a collection of, of not only propositions and truths, things to know, but also a huge volume of stories and narratives that help us understand what the words of the propositions actually mean. So I don't know if you've ever gone through um, uh, Instagram before on your, on your phone and data's not working the right way, and, and you can kind of scroll through and see these like pictures with question marks on them. You know what I mean? Like maybe you can just sort of see the data got through enough that you can see the, the captions on the bottom of each picture, but you're kind of like, okay, this isn't really helping me out because I don't have any pictures to go along with, with, the, with the captions. And, and I think that's kind of what we get here in Genesis um, is, is, is we could rush to Romans and understand systematic theology and understand sin as a problem, but without the picture of what sin actually is, we totally risk misinterpreting the, the, what, what the actual proposition is, the truth is. 
And I think that's, that's a big issue. I know that there's a lot of theologians these days that would love to just do away, uh, that talk about the Bible, uh, that, that don't really um, give a lot of credence at all to the Old Testament. And I've, and I've actually heard important you know, speakers and preachers talk about the idea of what if we just didn't teach the Old Testament? You know, the Old Testament just basically proves that God made people and men, man and woman are sinful. And so let's get to Romans as quick as we possibly can to understand the systematic theology. And, uh, and what Genesis is showing us is that we can, we can understand, you know, th- thematically and systematically the idea. You know, we can see the caption of that we're sinners. But, but Genesis 3, if we really allow it to sink into us, really shows us exactly what, he, what Paul would mean when he says justification or when he says sin or when he says reconciliation back to God. And so what I've got here is this, this leaf here. Uh, I wanted to get a fig leaf, uh, but I just did not have enough time. And so uh, what, what you see is uh, my neighbor's leaf. Um, I, I picked it off my neighbor's tree on the way over to church today. And, um, and, and so what we need to, what, what I bring this leaf up on stage here is just vibrantly green, right? The other side is kind of, you know, t- like brown and a little bit faded off there. But, but this thing is, is, or at least it was, alive about 35 minutes ago before I came to church today and I snatched it off. And, uh, but, but what we understand from anything about life, right, and, and biology and botany and these kinds of things is that although this thing is green and what looks, I mean, I could just duct tape it, I guess, next to one of the other branches that I took it off the tree on the way to, to church today. Um, it looks just like the other ones. And although it's green and although it looks like the other ones that are alive attached to the tree, we, we know undoubtedly that this leaf is what? This leaf is dead. This, this leaf is completely, uh, this leaf is not going to get any greener. It's only going to get any browner. Um, it shows some of the functions of life. It shows like it looks like it has, like you broke it apart. It might still have some, you know, maybe living cells in it uh, because of the way that, I don't know, I'm going beyond my pay grade here, right? But, but, but obviously we could see some signs of life here, but ultimately, categorically, we recognize that this thing is not living, it's dead. And, and so when we think about the idea of sin and we think about the idea of of, um, of death, of when we think about the idea of the curse and some of these themes that we looked at, and, and I'm going to kind of break some scriptures down here as we, we read through them, um, you know, we, we tend to think of them in legal terms. We tend to think of them first and foremost by, by, by checks on a record or, or spots on, or blemishes on, on a record, and, and there are these legal ideas of like things that we've done that broke the codes and broke the rules. But the, but the Jewish audience, and really the way that Genesis 3 reads, is not just about abiding by certain commandments and laws, it's about abiding by right relationship. So when the Jews read, by the end of this, whatever verse it is, 32, by the end of Genesis 3, they weren't just seeing a breakdown um, in sort of a, just the moral compass of man, although that was part of it. The bigger picture is they were seeing what? They were seeing disconnection from the one that made shalom. So the way that they would define sin is not just, you know, doing the wrong thing at the wrong time or doing the right thing at the wrong time, although that definitely fits the definition. But the broader scope for the, for the Jewish audience, and this is really, guys, if you read the scriptures all the way through Old Testament, um, the theme prevails. It's, it's, about, it's not just about, you know, good people doing bad things or bad people doing bad things. It's this bigger problem of, of what the Jews would call exile. It's this problem that east of Eden, there's this area that the writer of Ecclesiastes would call life under the sun. And in this area, um, it's not like God put a hex on this area east of Eden. He just allowed it to be separate from his presence. So sin is not, just, it's not some kind of a DNA strain that gets handed down from one person to the next. It's, a, it's an entire spiritual dynamic that as much as I want to, as much as I desire, as much as I think that I want to get back to the presence of God, the Jews would always recognize that, that 
that from that day forth, from the, from the day that Adam and Eve ate the, ate, the, ate the apple, or ate the fruit, rather, of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that they were now separate from God. That they were separate from God. And spiritually speaking, this was causing death. Although it looked on the outside, Paul would call this, as a first century Jew, the living dead. This looks like it's living, but ultimately it's spiritually dead. The problem of evil then and sin and, and, and chaos um, is, is not just as simple as kind of doing the right thing and saying the right uh, thing at the right time. It's, it's the way that Bob talked about in his testimony. It's not just about what's on your lips, but it's actually deeper than that. It's, it comes down to some core, deeper problem. So I just want to show you this, uh, this picture right now uh, of this um, trash island that exists in the Pacific Ocean, and then I will get into the, the scriptures today. But uh, this thing is seven miles long, and uh, I, think I, said, I think it weighs 700,000 tons. 700,000 tons of trash that has drifted its way out into the Pacific Ocean. Um, and actually beneath that, 70% of this mass, kind of like the iceberg effect, is actually below the water. It's all the way down on the water. And, uh, and the idea here is that it's the collection of mass from all different types of countries and all sorts of little micro decisions of, 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 of littering and, and, and waste and, and bad biodegradable decisions and so forth. And the collection of this collects around the Pacific Ocean and actually one in the Atlantic Ocean as well, so much so that not one country could uh, have enough money within its GDP today, including America, to actually fix one of these trash heaps, that it would take maybe about 65 countries combined to, to, to take care of that. And I share all that to say this, because I think when we fail to recognize the Jewish idea of what sin is, that sin isn't just doing something wrong, sin is separation from God. It is detachment from the tree of life. Not, not, no leaf could produce life if it's not attached to the tree. In the same way, no person could produce any spiritual life it is separated from God. And so, so, so I thought about it this way in a little bit more, less philosophical idea. We were driving down the street, Kyra and I, and uh, Kyra pointed out this massage parlor, and she, and she said, oh, yeah, I remember at the Switch Banquet last year, they talked about these massage parlors um, where, like, they were fronts for sexual trafficking activity. And I was like, oh, man, really? And it looked like a normal massage parlor. It was just something that I was, like, on Woodruff Road. And she's like, yeah. It's like um, they would have a front of a store in there, and they're money laundering and things. But behind that, there's all this ucky, ugly, nasty sexual stuff that goes on where they're like trafficking women through the storefront of this property. And I'm like, well, well, if they know that, then why don't they just break it down? And she said, the reason why is because they don't want to uh, prematurely kind of uh, take out one of these like ancillary auxiliary places. They want to go and find what she called the queen bee, the core, the root of it. And she said, Platinum Plus, some of you guys remember if you've been here for long enough, was one of those places. It was the queen bee. It was like this center of, of, of sexual trafficking activity. Um, but, but, and I thought, oh yeah, that makes sense. But it took me about 10 seconds. It'd probably take you about 10 seconds to recognize, to follow the train of thought. Like, but here's the issue, right? Because if you took down Platinum Plus, like at least the way that my mind goes, I'm going, you would just take that one out and another one would start up in its place. And I, and I wonder if that's, I'm sure that that's how Switch thinks and that's how people that are giving themselves to that justice mission in the earth. And I'm not saying that is a, is, a, is a vain thing or something that isn't effectual at all. I'm just saying that ultimately there's a deeper issue down there. There's a deeper core root that I think that Genesis taps into. So how did the trash get to the where it is? And how did, you know, sex trafficking become a thing? Well, if you wanted to get rid of the trash or get rid of sex trafficking, you have to get rid of um, perversion. And if you had to get rid of perversion, you have to get rid of lust. And if you had to get rid of lust, you have to get rid of fatherlessness. And if you have to get rid of fatherlessness, you go down the chain until ultimately you get to the ultimate queen bee, which is life apart from God, which is what we see in some of these passages. So let's just dive in here. So Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. And I do realize we're a little bit uh, 
short on time here um, just because of, um, of announcements and so forth, but I want to make sure that we um, would see what he would want us to see in, in this chapter. But it says this, um, we'll pick up from the last week. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, so this would be, this would be the queen bee. Like we're headed towards how this all thing fell apart. Before this, it was only good and very good. It was complete. It was shalom. There was a feet on the floor and God sitting in heaven and there was a, there was a uh, kingdom reigning. There was a perfect, uninterrupted authority line from God to man into the creation. And this is where it all turns in verse seven. Uh, well, actually, it starts rather a little bit further up where the temptation takes place from the snake and there's a desire for gaining wisdom. She takes it, she eats it. She also gave some to her husband and he ate it with her. So what is that choice? What is that choice? And we talked about this uh, last week. Um, is, is it just that, you know, beforehand they were kind of ignorant and now they're informed? Is it that they were just children and they were naive and now they're ultimately mature? Uh, potentially some of those things, but the root core principle here is found in verse 7. It says, the eyes uh, of them were open and they realized that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves to themselves to hide uh, from, from each other. So, so what has happened at Genesis 3 is that they had an opportunity to live in the temple of God, to be a perfect selim in the middle of that, to represent his rule and reign and to be kings and queens on the earth. But instead of trusting God's definition of good and evil, trusting in God, defining the way that thing would, thing would go, uh, trusting God to be ultimately what the creation was about, they decided to take the fruit and redefine good and evil for themselves, to become their own king, their own queen, to become autonomous, to become independent. This is the root core of sin. Sin is not just cussing at your mom, although that's downwind of that, downstream of that. And it's not just sex trafficking or, pollu- or pollution. That ultimately sin, it comes down to one issue. And until we would ever solve this issue, we would always have the same systemic problems in our, in our world. Sin is the, the ability or the desire to live apart from God. God has offered us this opportunity to live with him or without him. And it says clearly, not only in this chapter, but in all the chapters from Genesis 3 to 11, if we have time, I'll just walk through some of that as well. It's the perpetual decision to live my life apart from God, that I don't need him, that I don't want him, that I would be better off without him, and I'm going to uh, do what he doesn't do for me and holding out for me, and I'm going to make my own decision. I'm going to seize autonomy for myself, and it's living life by my rules, sometimes and oftentimes at the expense of others. And so what we see this from this is kind of a fallout. It's just a massive Chernobyl of problems that happen, but it all starts with that one simple thing. And so what do we see? Do they die when, he, when, when they take the fruit ultimately? Or do they die, excuse me, immediately once they take the fruit? Remember that from the beginning, this, was the, this is the kind of the gasping moment when they take the fruit, like, oh shoot, what's gonna happen? You know, they, the Lord God told them, don't, don't take from the tree. If you take from the tree, you are going to surely die. And actually, that surely die is like die, die. It means like dying, you will die. That's what the Hebrew idea is. It reminds me of this uh, cartoon in Robin Hood that I grew up watching. This turtle was talking about how like he's crossing his heart and swear to God. He's going to show up to this thing for a little Robin Hood guy. And he's like, I promise that I'm not going to tattletale. And if I tattletale, I'll die till I'm dead. And I always remember that, die till I'm dead. It's this picture of somebody not just dying, but like dying thoroughly. That's what it means. If you're going to take this, this fruit, are you going to, uh, live with me or live without me. If you live without me, you're not only gonna die, you're gonna die thoroughly. Like in your essence, in your core, it's gonna cause this deadly, deadly death. How can you be more than dead? I don't know, but God is saying you can be more than dead. All right, so the question is, is that when, when she takes the tree or when she takes the fruit and eats it and hands it to her husband, and he eats it, do they die immediately? Well, the answer is actually, yeah, they kind of do. But in a, in a way that helps us understand what God actually defines as sin. Sin is not just an action, ultimately. It's a, 
It's a distortion of a relationship. It is taking God's perfect order of shalom and not actually creating things, but just sort of reorganizing everything on our own terms. And this is what we see here is that they do actually start to die. If you look, they start to die. Verse seven, when the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked, they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. I don't think I extend it to the um, slides, but I'm gonna read back to Genesis chapter two and I wanna juxtapose Genesis two verses 23 through 25 next to what we just read in Genesis three. So Genesis two, if you have it in front of you, you could, verse 23, it says, the man said, this is now bone of my bone and this is flesh of my flesh. If you guys remember, we talked about this, the idea of two covenant others loving each other in, perpetual, in perpetuity, and this idea that there'd be two separate people that could choose away from each other and, and chose towards each other. And what God says is that there's going to be this covenant joined together where these two people are going to be, uh, they used to be two separate flesh, they're going to be one flesh, and two separate sets of bones and anatomy, and they're going to be connected. Does that mean they're, you know, Siamese twins now? It's like, no. There's a spiritual idea here um, that Paul talks about even in the New Testament that it's kind of like um, we're so together, we, we're so united and yoked that if, that if I were to um, take a hammer and hit my hand with a hammer as hard as I can accidentally and hurt my hand, that somehow Eve would, that my, my, my wife or the one that I'm covenanted with would feel it. That's the idea. It's like a man wouldn't hurt his own body and so much so like a man shouldn't hurt his wife and a wife wouldn't hurt her husband. This is the picture of two people that are so joined intimately, right, that they are, um, they're basically one. And that's how God says it in verse 24. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and he's united to his wife and they become one flesh. And then it says uh, his, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. So we see a direct correlation and a direct uh, contrast between Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, where two are becoming one in Genesis 2. Now, in Genesis, Genesis 3, there's this tearing. There's this, there's this ripping. And, 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 and maybe if you, and probably I'm sure everybody in this room has, has either been a part of or seen or, or looked into the chasm of what we call divorce, you know, in, in our day, in our culture, and, and what, it, what that experience is like. I mean, I, don't, I mean, obviously there's respiration, there's breathing, there's ways to measure life, but there is absolutely a kind of spiritual death that goes on when covenant partners are split apart. Even if they're not ultimately divorced, when we, when we fight and when we're jealous and we're bitter, I mean, if we're not divorced, we experience like there's other things that some people will even say are worse than death. And so do they die automatically? Yes and no. Ultimately, we see in Genesis 3, they're gonna die immediately, they're gonna die perpetually, and they're gonna die ultimately. That's the idea. God was not a liar and he wasn't just kind of like, you know, trying to lay down the hammer to keep them farther away from the street kind of idea. It's like he, he, was, he was serious when he said that. The second that they ate it, they started to die. There was a spiritual death and emotional death. And when we get into science and we think about death only in terms of just respiration and heart rate and that kind of thing, we're missing the point. God is defining death. There's worse things in this life than your heart stop, stopping to beat, right? And what he would say is it's life apart from him. Eternity without him or even potentially somebody that is so far apart from him that the very ways of God that are good would be called evil and the very evil things that God has decided as not good, they would call good. This is what it would be like to be trapped. And we're starting to see what this picture of death being broader and wider and deeper than we would really imagine. All right, verse eight. Then the man said to his wife, uh, oh, excuse me, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called the man, he says, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. 
So now we not only have a separation, a tearing of two from, you know, one, two into one and then one into two, a splitting between covenant partnership and disunity. And now that instead of intimacy, there's shame. There was nakedness and intimacy. Now there's nakedness and shame. And, and now we see an even almost deadlier death. There's this tear where the one that used to come and bring joy and purpose and breathe my life into me and laid me down to sleep and brought my covenant uh, helper. Helper just means it's, it's almost like a, uh, it's a, Azer, I think, is the name of the Hebrew word. It's this, it's this helper. It's this fulfillment of who I am. His presence used to bring me joy, but now as he comes towards me, there's this fear inside of me. There's this fear of his intent and, and his heart and whether or not the universe is, is maybe conspiring against me and, and that the, the things that um, the one that made me is telling me might be true or it might not be true. There's this kind of disconnection, not only horizontally now, but vertically, and there's this kind of separation and death. And then verse uh, 11, it says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I command you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit of the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. So we see, not only do we have, there's like three core sin root issues in all of, in all of humanity, right? There's first, there's shame. There's this idea that the person that's beside me is not for me, is it against me? And their definition of good and evil, since we're all defining seven billion versions of good and evil, is going to be leveraged against me politically. And if I don't root them out, then they're going to root me out. So there's a shame and a disconnection. There's a, a fear of the future and a fear of who holds me and protects me. Will God really protect me? Will God really provide me? Or do I need to protect and provide for myself? There's a spiritual death that goes this way. So there's, there's shame and there's fear. And now here's the, the kind of crown of the, of the triad of, of sin here. Is, is not only is there a, sh a shame and a fear, but there is a pride to admit that it's there. And some of you guys have had kids before, and it's one thing if your kid makes a mistake. And it's one thing if, if your child kind of has a routine, you know, maybe pattern or habit or, or what, 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 what have you. But what is like kind of the, the, the lethal blow of that is not just that, that your children are making mistakes, but it's that, or even continually making mistakes, but it's the, it's the child's inability to see the mistake becomes the cementing issue, right? It becomes the nail in the coffin, so to speak, spiritually, not, not to over-exaggerate uh, the thing, but, but pride, the ability to not see, right? That it, it's not just that I'm, I don't have God, it's that I don't want God, and that if God came to me, I would run from him or I'd fight him or I would reject him because I don't see my need for God, and now what God said is right is now wrong, and now what God said is wrong and now right, and I am so so buried, and, 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 and even though God's, kindness moves towards me in the garden, right? You see that Adam wasn't looking for God. God was looking for Adam. That the nature of sin is that God pursues man, but man doesn't even know he needs God. And so he runs towards the one that's killing him uh, and, and ironically and tragically ironically rejects the one that's pursuing him to heal him, to give him life. These are all kind of the things that like when Paul just says sin, the wages of sin and trespass, we'll miss this. We'll, we'll miss the nature of what this really means, of, 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 the, of the stakes of sin and the cost of sin and the propensity of ourselves to sin. And if we don't understand the definition, definition of sin, and, the, and as Bob said really great this morning, if we don't understand how bad the bad news is, we'll never wake up to how good the good news is. And we'll never be reminded of who God is in, in all of this mess. And we'll blame shift and we'll project and we'll say it's his fault or their fault or the Republicans' fault or the Democrats' fault or, or my teacher's fault or my boss's fault. And, and, and there's this, this spiral of, of a problem that's not only that there is a, a death, but there is a deadly death. There's a death that cannot be returned from. 
And this is how the, the Egyptians, or Egyptians, what am I doing here? The Israelites, all these people groups, this is how the Israelites would have, would have typified this, would have seen uh, all of this in the curse. So the curse is a poem. You notice Genesis 1, all of Genesis 1 was a poem, and the creation of man was a poem. Then Genesis 2 opens up, and it's just kind of recording events. There's not really a balance meter in rhyme. But then there's another poem right there for the covenant of Adam and Eve. So right now we have three poems. The first poem is for creation. Second poem is for covenant and marriage. And then the third poem here is for the curse. And, and so, again, we got to read this with not like literal interpretation about like, oh, there's more thistles and thorns. It's like we're trying to understand from a poetic standpoint of like, uh, not just the nature of sin, but the consequence. Like, he's not, he's not punishing these people. He's telling them what they chose. He's allowing them into the land east of Eden under the sun, underneath, uh, apart from the blessing, provision, and promise of God. And cursing just means what you are when you're not with God. He's just telling them this is what it is. He's not hexing somebody. He doesn't need to lift a finger to make life without him bad. It already is, just by nature. And so this is what this poem says. I'll read it. Cursed of you, because he talks to the snake first, serpent first. Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat the dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So diet, uh, that is going to talk about with Adam and the snake. Diet is not what you're eating. You know, eating dust is not just like your diet. Uh, what you're eating is, is representative of your station in life. And so everybody gets this demotion, right? So it actually was that Adam used to just, oranges would just fall off the tree and there would be fruit in his hand. It says that Adam and Eve would eat the, the fruit of the tree. But later on in the passage, the curse is going to say that Adam now has to live like the animals. He eats the, the, the uh, what's that, the plants of the field, what the animals used to eat. And so that shows you, that's a, that's a poetic uh, illusion and imagery that shows you that man's going to have to survive like animals. They're going to have to kill and fight and, 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 and hoard. And, and underneath this curse, they're going to have to be their own God and be their own protector and be their own provider. And so they're going to have to eat like the animals do. That's the idea here. And so, so then the animals, and rather the snake in this sense, was cursed so much that he no longer eats the plants of the field. He's going to eat the dust, which is representing, representing death. So we'll come back to that in a moment. It says to the woman, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe and your painful labor will give uh, birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and uh, he will rule over you. So I'm not a lot of time to get into this, but the idea of pain here is not just physical pain, it's an anguish. Um, uh, The commentaries and and the scholars and the the ways that they talk about the word here, it's this idea of not just like the pain of pushing out a baby after nine months, It it is this fear and this trepidation around the whole topic of the baby. It's like, can I get pregnant? Can I hold a baby? Can I carry a baby? Will my, will my body hold up under being pregnant? If I have the baby, will the baby live long? And will the baby be blessed? And will the baby have a father? And will the baby have a husband? This kind of anguish is going to be part of the fall. And it says, then the desire will be towards the husband. And in some ways, it's this, it's this desire for the husband to come along and, and cover and, um, and mitigate and, and support and protect and provide in ways that only God was supposed to protect and provide. And, and, and all that anguish is targeted at the husband, but the husband doesn't, can't or won't ever provide it. And he uses that vulnerability in her and that need towards her, or towards him rather, this desire, maternal instinct, I'm telling you, you go to Target and like, it's, it's 50, it's 100% of the time, right? When you walk by with a baby, like the guy is like, I just don't care. There's a baby, that just means like, I'm gonna have to feed him. 
Like when you roll through Target, like every woman, you know, like 20 and 25 and 40, like there's this maternal instinct to want to care and be, and be motherly. I don't, it doesn't mean necessarily biologically to have a baby, but this idea of like mothering children is at the core of what women are. But this anguish that's matched with it begins to deteriorate the marriage and deteriorate being a mother and the whole process of being a mom because there's anguish attached to what used to be blessed. Then it goes on and talks about the man because the man doesn't go towards the home and the family. The man goes towards the field and towards work to find significance and blessing. And so it says, because of this, uh, you ate from the tree and uh, it's going to be cursed now, right? The, the ground that you're going to work on, it's not just agricultural. He's thinking forward into industry as well. It's just the whole prospect of work is cursed. The idea of when we're working, there's this like painful toil. It's the same word there, painful, anguish, fear. Will I make enough money? Am I significant? Do I have enough? Am I going to have enough letters next to my name? Does, that, does anything I do matter? Am I significant? Like this, this aching fear that the field never provides because they're looking for God in the field and the field's not God. And, and that's the problem. There's this painful toil. It will produce for you thorns and thistles, and you will eat plants of the field by the sweat of your brow, and you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since uh, from it you were taken. And there it is. There you, dust you are, and dust you will turn. I mean, this is the, this is the, 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 the nail in the coffin, right? Like, he was made of divine breath and dust. But it says later on around the days of Noah that God says the world is so evil that after 120 years, I'm going to return the ruah back to my breath, like the very gift that I gave. If you extend beyond Eden too far, there's even breath itself is not there. And, and Adam misplayed his hand. He, he forgot that the, one, the only reason why he had any divinity to become an image bearer and to become a king and a ruler was because of the breath that he had in his lungs. And, and now Adam being dust plus, plus a divine breath, he's missing half of himself. He's missing the the divine half of himself and the life-bearing half of himself. And, and so his days are numbered and, and Ecclesiastes just poetically shows us so well what this looks like on everyday life, this idea that we're toiling and working and at the end of it, we just recognize that, you know, a lot of times the, the, the evil, you know, are, are benefited and the good are taken down and you invest your money in the right stocks and then they all crash or you build up the business and you hand it down and your kid doesn't care about it. It's like this futile idea of like the meaning's not in the work anymore because of this. And, and so it all kind of culminates, verse 20. And I know i got to shut it down here. But Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and live forever. So taking the tree of life without taking uh, presence with God would be like having an eternal life without eternal youth. So God's not rivaling with Adam, trying to protect and hedge his power against Adam. He is blessing Adam by allowing him to walk away and only live a short time under this curse. He knows that if, 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 if Adam were to snatch the tree of life and live forever without the presence of God, then he would only live a kind of deadly or deadly death than the death that he was hardly going to die. And so he allows him to leave. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take from the tree and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground which he had uh, he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed the man east of the, of the Garden of Eden and all of Babylon and, and Assyria and, and Egypt. There's always this idea, the further east you went, that was this, this symbol as you read the Old Testament of what it means to be exiled. Sin is not just a bad action. It's a, it's a proximity to God. It's a distance from God. And that's ultimately what the core root problem is. After he drove the man out, he placed him on the east side of the garden. The cherubim, the planing sword was flashing back and forth to guard. That same word that Adam was supposed to do to guard the garden, now God is guarding the garden against him. 
Now, Adam, although he was a priest, is now going to need a priest. And now God is forever um, exiled and banished uh, from, from his presence. All right. How can I conclude all of this in, uh, in a short amount of time? Well, um, when we read things like Romans 3, Romans 3 tells us true things. It tells us things like the penalty of sin is death. Uh, it tells us things that all, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that no one seeks God, not even one. It tells us things in complete alignment. It's not a deviation or uh, a sidestep or another extra interpretation. It's the same linear argument that Genesis 3 through 11 is going to make. That Genesis 3 starts from people who just kind of were deceived to take an apple, but Genesis 4, we have a brother killing a brother, and sin is crouching at the door. And by the time we get to Genesis 6, there's a guy named Lamech bragging about how many times he killed people versus how many times Cain killed, how many times Cain killed people. He took many wives, which is the first notice of polygamy, which is not only just like two, you know, two, one splitting into two, but two multiplying into six and seven wives. And he sings a poem, and his poem is not about the creation, the goodness of God. This poem's about the arrogance and defiance of man against God. And then in Genesis 6, I think there's these things called the sons of God, these fallen creatures that have sex with women on the earth and have these beasts and Nephilim that are going to rule over this place. And then by Genesis 11, instead of building a temple, we build a ziggurat, this temple of ourselves to make a name for ourselves the end of God. All that being said, it's theology and proposition in Genesis in Romans showing us what Genesis is showing us in the same storyline, which is that it's not getting any better. And, and the, what's interesting to me is that in Romans, when we see those, those words, it's kind of like, man, God is pretty like nitpicky. I mean, is he really seeing the world as this bad? I see lots of good stuff that goes on in the world. There's charity and human rights and there's progress and there's all these things. And but when you look at the story, like when you look at the picture, not just the caption, not just the proposition, you really, really do look at the idea of Babel and the idea of polygamy and sexual promiscuity and licentiousness. And when you look at the idea of arrogance and greed and political scandal and militants, it's not far from the truth. And it's so critical that we wake up to this. Because here's the deal, and let me just put up the sermon in a sentence right here. It all came together like in this line for me, is that I think that we, we really do see our sin as small and God being picky. When I just read Romans, I'm like, oh man, like I get it. He's like this OCD God that just like everything has to be in its, oh, I noticed it, you moved it and you changed it and the thing. It's like, and there is, there's, there's this holiness and that's part of the problem. Like even Moses like gets the 10 commandments, they build the tabernacle, the end of Deuteronomy, he tries to get into the presence of God. It's like, boom, like there still isn't, there still isn't enough for him to get back into the presence of God. So I'm not gonna mitigate that at all. But my point is this, is that sin is not as small as we think that it is, first of all. It affects everybody around us. It affects everyone. And that's the thing is we think that just a glimpse at some website or just a thought in our car or even just a moment where I'm not connected to God doesn't have an impact, but it absolutely does. That's the greatest lies. We think that sin is the place that is the, is the queen bee at Platinum Plus and it's the thing that's out at the massage parlor and it's the school shootings out there and it's some other thing in some other place. And we fail to recognize that we are the ones that put the Pepsi bottle in the ocean to collect that thing out there. And that's the dangers we think that we think that our sin is small, but our sin is, is deep, right? Because we got to get back to the understanding of what sin is. Sin is not, I, I promise you, I know a lot of people that are great people. I mean, great, great people. And you know people that are great people. I mean, it's like, come on, we live in this educated society. We have these like, you know, social contracts that we stand in line and we're pretty organized and look at all the stuff that we're making and there's like progress here and we're listening to one another and God's going, no. I know it looks like this, but he's like, 
but you're not connected to me. And that's the arrogance of man. Like, we, like it's not just about what we say and what we do. It's who we're with and how we're connected to him. And what he's saying and showing to us is that we are not connected to him. And we can dress it up and it can look like it's alive. It can truly look like it's going well. Life can, for 50 and 60 and 70 years, God is slow. He moves a lot slower than us. And the whole time we think we're doing fine and the whole time we're thinking it's somebody else's issue and somebody else's problems and we're the heroes and they're the villains and we're the victim and Adam's the villain. It's like, no, we make that decision every single day. And so, and so it's this invitation, I believe. And obviously we have to kind of come to a close here and I'll, and I'll pray us out. But it's just this invitation, I believe, that this problem, like the thing that makes Platinum Plus happen is not because people break the rules only because they break the rules or because people make mistakes or because that some people are bad and some other people are good and the bad people are louder than the good people. It's that all people are separate from God. And until the separation from God problem is solved, namely through the blood of Jesus and through the presence of the Holy Spirit, we are dead and dying. We are only, this, we are only dead and dying. We are only hurting. We're never helping are complimenting people and being nicer to people and, 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 and you know, being more organized and, and looking better and, and respecting our elders and all these things, which, which are wonderful ways to try and appeal to the law. Jesus says that, like, I don't care if you've never been to Platinum Plus before. If you've undressed anybody in your eyes, you've already done it. It's already done that. It's already caused that. And so again, it's not this picture of this like OCD God that like just wants everybody to follow his rules. No, it's a relational loving God, which we are blind to see he pursues us when we're running away. And the problem is so much deeper than we think because every minute in the car that we're driving down the road and we are not connected to Jesus, we are causing in a ripple effect our children to disrespect their teachers and teachers to cycle out of their classrooms and our society to break down and then people don't have jobs and then all these other issues. We think we're so disconnected and prideful. We are prideful in thinking we're disconnected from the problem. We are the very source of the problem. We have two natures within us that are battling between us. I'll close today with this and, and it's just that the leaf has been grafted in and that ultimately speaking that... Uh, I love that Genesis only has one really glimmer of hope. I mean, it's all really bad news other than the one little line. And that's important because it just makes a myopic hope for us. It's the only hope. It's to come nearer to him, not to try harder, but to come nearer to him. Paul says in Romans 5 that there's a reconciliation that's taken. He's pulled the sin and the trash and the garbage and the exploitation and the lust and, the, and all the empire and all that stuff. And he puts it on himself and he takes it. And he fights not Rome, he fights the kingdom of, of, of evil and darkness and, and sin overplayed its hand. He thought that if he killed Jesus, he would rule the world, but he killed Jesus and instead he lost the world. And, and, he, and, and Jesus, he led many, many victors in the train of his, of his robe. And, and, and so now what we have is, now we have a world that looks like this, sin that looks like it's alive, but really it's dead. Did you know that D-Day happened exactly one year before VE Day? And all military experts knew that when we stormed the troops of Normandy and when we took that beachhead, the war was over. The war was over. When did, when did the snake get crushed on? When Jesus said, Tetelestai, when Jesus said, it is finished, it is finished. So this is the reality that we find ourselves in. We used to be like this leaf. We used to think we were alive, but really dead. Now we live in a situation where if we're grafted in, this is the leaf. This leaf now represents the, 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 the serpent. 
Although he looks alive, and Taylor talked about this in worship, although it looks like he's ruling over us, although it looks like our marriage is falling apart and like the Garden of Eden, although it looks like the wife's desires for the husband and the husband rules over, and although it looks like the husband is giving himself away to the toil of labor, not so in Christ, that in Christ, it's not that we are dead and dying. Now death is dead and dying in our midst, and we live in an era of time when, of the already not yet, when there is victory, but the victory has been established, but it's not been completed quite yet. In the book of Revelation, it truly talks about the beast, the snake being you know, chopped off in his head. But ultimately though, guys, everything is being used for glory and good. This is the era that we live in. I wish I had more time. And obviously this is the problem that I've run out of time, but you know, it's hard to present the bad news and the good news sometimes in the same fell swoop. But I hope that the Holy Spirit helps interpret my words here and maybe go home and read Romans 5 because I think it directly applies the, 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 the caption to what I think this picture is. But he is our only hope. And we are not trying harder, we're drawing nearer. The solution of poverty and problems uh, is not in the political election of 2020. It is in the nearness of Jesus. Distance from Jesus is, Jesus is deadly. It's not just because I don't have enough peace or not just because I didn't get you know, his victory in my job. It's no, that I'm dead and dying without uh, proximity to Jesus. And so through his resurrection and through his blood, we have come near to him. We can go boldly towards him. And it is the abiding that, that the only thing, the closest to Jesus that actually undermines and circumvents the idea of fear and shame and pride within our heart that we might actually be a new kind of humanity that would walk in a new creation bringing victory into this world. This is our only hope. There's 38 verses of non-hope and then only one. It is that serpent killer. It is, the, it is the heel of the wounded victor that steps on the head of the serpent, killing sin at its root, not at, not at platinum plus, but at the root, the root issue, which is defiance of God that we might trust Jesus and come into his, into his likeness and bear fruit, much fruit than fruit that remains. Let me pray for us and we'll close for today. So Heavenly Father, I thank you that those that are gathered here, they represent a remnant. They represent an important, pivotal hinge of history. The people that are in this room by faith in Jesus are the only hope. The local church is the only hope. And so we turn, God. We turn. That is our, that is our only possibility for life in this life and life for our city and neighbors and nations um, is to turn to you not just to recognize sin, but to recognize your goodness. And we don't try harder, we draw near. We know that as we draw near boldly, we are gonna abide with you or be regrafted with you. And sin at its source will be stepped on as we're, as we're reunited with you. So we thank you for the blood that reconciles us and we don't take it lightly. We come near you when we approach you that we might bear fruit, much fruit, and become alive again um, in your name. We love you and trust you in these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.